On this week's episode of the Bitcoin Beat, we have another jam session where Big Brune and I hash out some topics that caught our eyes over the past week. We start this episode discussing the intersection of church, state, and Bitcoin maximalism. We then discuss some Bitcoin news and discuss a macro base case for Bitcoin. We finish the episode with a return to my weekly Ethereum beef, with a focus on stablecoins and blockchain governance. We hope you enjoy this episode, and for more in-depth information on topics discussed, visit our website at www.suresats.com, that's S-U-R-E-S-A-T-S.com, as well as follow us on Twitter at SureSats. All right, we're back for uh, Bitcoin Beat episode eight. We had a little uh, technical difficulties getting this one set up, but we hope you appreciate the one because you have no idea how much <laughs> troubleshooting we just had to do to get this one even started. It's late. We work in the morning. I had a little couple extra drinks last night oh, that I shouldn't have had. So I about that too. Now I'm, you know, just just lagging. All right. Well, I think where I wanted to start off was a little bit of a continuation of where we left off briefly last episode, just kind of talking maximalism. We kind of ended on like a morality type level of that's kind of where this whole maximalism type thing finds its place as kind of an ethics and morality. So I think one of the things we talked about too was how, you know, with kind of the disappearance of mainstream religion the state has kind of assumed that role of religion it's kind of that sure i think you said politics right has taken the role of religion and i think i was saying as society becomes more secular the way people identify has kind of taken the role of religion right and i think people are always kind of looking for some type of compass like a moral compass they need something to kind of like structure themselves and put themselves in that box on how they're supposed to live their life. And I think that has what, like the role that the state is playing right now is as opposed to what Catholicism or Judaism used to play. All right. So kind of beating around the bush on, on, in that setting the playing field for what I was thinking, kind of going back, like taking us back 1500 years, 2000 years where the church essentially got us out of the dark ages. It assumed the role that was left vacant by the Roman empire. It kind of brought everyone back together. It almost played like a bank role, a lending role, kind of financed projects and built bridges and restructured society. From like a single moral goal. Right, exactly. So this was all based on say, let's call it the 10 commandments. Kind of an unbreakable set of rules that embodies everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be the Pope. You can be a peasant in the street. At the end of the day, it all comes down to those Ten Commandments between you and God. Mm -hmm. That's how your judgment is made. So now everyone is kind of put onto a level playing field because they all have to operate with under those same rules. Okay. And then as things go on and because it's, it's still a, a human institution, the church is still a human institution. It kind of begins to be bastardized and people in power, especially the priests, they kind of take the role to, you know, absolve people of their sins for payment. 
Mm-hmm. And so through this course of time, it results in people starting to have some backlash against the church. They no longer want this kind of oversight from the church. It dissolves essentially, and the church is no longer playing that role of, you know, overseer of everyone. And that's kind of where the state comes in and takes that role. Okay. So now you have the state assuming that role. It's bringing everyone together. It's probably beginning to take that moral compass kind of place. And now we're, we're here where now everyone kind of looks at the state to be told what to do, what they can and cannot do. So my point is that over time, you saw that separation of church and state, which is now like a, a whole thing that we see separation of church and state. It's like commonplace. This has to be a thing because without it, you know, everything gets mixed up, et cetera, whatever it is. But I think now the next step, the next evolutionary step that we're going post-state, which is now the separation of state and money. Mm -hmm. And that's where we have Bitcoin come in. And now Bitcoin is essentially a set of rules that have already been determined And now everyone has to operate by the exact same rules within that monetary system. So it removes almost like the, the fallibility of man. You're going back towards having something that is not controllable by man that is leveling the playing field and bringing everyone underneath the same construct. So the first thing that came to my mind when you started this and you went with the commandments is today I saw a tweet actually by an ETH maxi. Okay. One of the bankless guys, it was a Ryan Adams. He tweeted, I like Bitcoin, but I think I like Ethereum better. Is that, is that allowed? And obviously, you know, all the hornets came out. Everyone was attacking him. Just a massive, he was, he was looking for punishment. He was an engagement tweet, right? Yeah, of course. But. As he was responding to Bitcoin maxis, he goes, what are the commandments of a Bitcoiner? He goes, thou shall not, what? Thou shall not hold any other coin. Thou shall not talk about any other project. Thou shall not whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first thing that came to my mind as you started this is that. And then also the fact that you're talking about, so Bitcoin as a monetary asset and has rules within a monetary system. What you're really talking about is social rules mm-hmm. that was governing society. Bitcoin doesn't necessarily does not have social rules, right? Anyone can opt in and work within the system without social rules, but there is a social layer to any blockchain. Right. Right, you all have to agree to these rules. And if you don't like these rules, you can fork and it's a social decision as well as a monetary decision to choose whatever fork aligns with your goals and morals and how you perceive this network to, to work. So it is a bit of both, but that's why I was, I was just kind of laughing in my head as you were going, I was just letting you go because I was like, I literally just saw this today. Yeah. Um, that's funny. But yeah, so I, so that's one thing that the Ethereum people do say pretty often too, is that, all right, L1 is, you know, the, the main chain. Layer zero is the social layer. And that's a big part of blockchains, which it absolutely. So that's the thing about coin. And that was actually like, what is the main discovery that, you know, what is the main problem that Bitcoin solved? 
It's the Byzantine fall general problem. That's the main problem, mm-hmm. right? But that's, it's not like just a, a database, but it was like, how did we solve this social problem of trust within this structure? So yeah, that's just kind of what I was thinking about. Yeah, I see that. I, I mean, I think the, the whole point at which I think I'm trying to get to with like this separation of state and money and bringing it to Bitcoin, which essentially has rules that are unchangeable. I would think that at this point, like the 21 million, unchangeable. Those are all pushback. Right. So that's where I think, though, is that I think you lose the whole kind of concept that I think is important here by changing those sets of rules because it just opens it up to more changes which ultimately over time will destroy it so in my opinion because i think men and i'm using men as the term to encompass all humans always it's just within our nature to become selfish and to take things in a direction that may benefit us in the short term without being able to see the bigger picture in the long term and I think it leads to the collapse over time. Well, so you have to remove that element of being able to, to adjust things to fit your current circumstance. Well, this is where it comes back to the social agreements that we all make to work, use the system, right? We all currently agree that there is 21 million, but if it does become an issue where the fee market doesn't provide enough security for the network, then we would have to come to a social agreement within everyone is do we hold 21 million so sacred that it ruins the whole thing? It is, right. of course, if this is how it plays out. Right. If the if the fees aren't enough for miners to be incentivized to continue to mine blocks, then we would have to come to a social agreement to potentially have a tail subsidy. So tail emission. So we'd have to pick an inflation rate mm-hmm. and everyone would have to decide if they agree with this or if they are just going to let the coin die and that that's it if that if it gets to that point that is the that's the social agreement that everyone would have to to make so you go catholic church post church to state post state to a bitcoin world and then post 21 million if you ever got to that point okay i can see your argument there yeah that's just another evolution of that yeah but you know like we've said in previous podcasts we have decades until we have to worry about that there's a lot more pressing issues until then yeah no that was just kind of where i saw kind of that whole place for morality in that it levels the playing field and that's i think kind of the whole purpose yeah i think did you want to touch on that from like a bitcoin maximalist perspective because that's where we were talking about last episode is like they think they're are they're upholding this moral code so but they're just like, so like if you make the religious to Bitcoin maximalist comparison, they are the like extreme. They're the extremists. They're like, okay. So or, I, or, or I guess that's the toxic. This is me also conflating right now, right. which is what I was pushing back against last episode. That is the like ultra toxic Bitcoin maximalist. They're like purist. Like, well, so I think that would be more on from from the Bitcoin maximalist perspective. It would be kind of basing your world you would only want to base your world on that 
one construct, yeah. which is Bitcoin, similar to, I mean, the church or the state, you're basing yeah. your world so people that just are construct on either one of those things. There are many other things that happen ancillary to that and built upon top on top of it, but your base layer just in society you mean. would be right. Yeah. Would be, I mean, and the, under underneath the church, it would be God above everything. You yeah. know, underneath the state, it would be, I guess, law above everything. Yeah. So point. toxic Bitcoin maximalists would be Bitcoin above everything and only Bitcoin and you can't talk about anything else because it's heresy. Right. Well, that's in the extreme because, I mean, there are ways that both the church and the state did operate outside of those extremes. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess in that this is me comparison, just, com, you would, this is me just going with the analogy. You would be having that that tox the toxic would be the the heresy and burning you at the stake yes for any type of stepping outside but bringing it back to kind of the toxic thing i think there's maybe a misunderstanding or people are using the term loosely to like apply you know i don't think it's toxic to stand behind your beliefs and defend them staunchly you know and not take anything from anyone else to change your mind unless it's perhaps argued well. But I, th I feel like there's people on Twitter that are like, oh yeah, you know, be toxic. Whereas they're really just saying like, yeah, well just challenge my beliefs. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not toxic. Toxic is like just being an asshole to be an asshole for no other purpose other than to just be an asshole. Yes. You know? Yeah. So I think that also needs to be clearly defined is everyone referring to this quote unquote toxic. Is that just a regular Bitcoin maximalist or are we referring to the people that are like, you know, screaming on Twitter, like children? Yeah. So that's funny. I actually just bookmark a, a tweet of myself from like a year ago. I was tweeting actually at now he, he was, had no followers back then. Now he's a prominent, um, Bitcoin influencer on spaces, but he was like, he deleted all these tweets. So I can't even like, I forget exactly which one it was. I'm not going to name any names here, but you would know who he was if you saw him on Twitter. So I forget exactly what he said because the tweets are deleted, but I said, it's so soft. If mean people on the internet can make you give up the hardest asset ever created, you either haven't been on the internet very long or don't understand what you hold, which yeah, exactly what you said last episode was like, yeah, people are mean on the internet. At the same time, I've come to realize that me even saying that didn't change anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think, you know, being toxic actually has you know, changed anyone's mind or like, I guess my definition of toxic versus right. Yeah. What you were just saying. And that's where it comes back to like, how are we using these words? Yeah, exactly. And we're, <laughs> the words seem to be very important and we're just not defining anything properly and using labels loosely, I think is kind of really just grouping people maybe incorrectly. I don't yeah. Know. That's funny. So the next thing I said, which is like, I don't even know if I still agree with these, like how I worded some of these things, but I said, I guess the market told the toxic Bitcoiners the last thing six times, or 
I, I guess the top, the market told the toxic Bitcoiners the same thing six times last bull run too. If you really think mean people are going to stop the $100 trillion collapsing debt market from parking money in the hardest asset, you're misguided. <laughs> and I also, this was, my, this was over a year ago, so. And then I also said, also, I'd say this recent wave of toxicity stemmed from a good place. Elon is leading people to doge, likely to end in ruin, and shit tweeting for fun at the expense of those that are actually using Bitcoin for its intended purpose. Hmm. And so here we are, you know, a year and a change later. Do you still agree with that? With toxicity directed at Elon for... Oh, I didn't think it did anything. Oh, okay. So, like, at that time, I thought it was coming... Or I guess, you know, I don't know what he was saying, but I guess at that time, I thought people were being toxic because Elon was basically, you know, going all in in Bitcoin at that point in time. And then at the same time, telling everyone to go into Doge. And we all knew how that was going to end, which played out correctly. Yeah, cause And that's bad. where I thought people were like, that toxicity was trying to, you know, help people not go into Doge. But now, looking back a year later, I don't think that stopped anyone. The people, it, I don't think it stopped anyone from going into Doge by being toxic. Right. You know, the people that were going to go into Doge are, you know, had to learn that lesson for themselves. But yes, but then I think... It's just funny, like, just, you know, today, Tesla sold 75% of its Bitcoins holding. So just looking well, at these... they didn't sell it today. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was announced today. today. I'm sorry. It's, it was sold over the past quarter. Right. Which means the Bitcoin market absorbed all that Bitcoin selling. And after this week, you know, we've had a decent rally back up to almost 25,000. But it's selling off on actually that news a little bit, which is funny to me because we already absorbed all that selling. Right. It's I think a narrative thing. It is, exactly. And I think just because of how, one, there are literally zero positive narratives and how, like, thin this rally is, that anything <laughs> negative was just going to, like, tip it right back over the edge. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of did it, which, honestly... I honestly think we'll... I thought we would get a bump because, like, it proved to be strong enough to have absorbed all that selling. Yeah. Well, I think... It's so close to a billion. I think that is something that needs to still be, like, digested by the market because I think initially reactions are always kind of gut. Yeah, let's go into this a little bit. So, yeah, I think in the short term, it's going to cause a move down. I think, though, maybe it kind of cut this little, like, relief rally... Maybe a little bit short. Maybe it had another thousand or so to go before it kind of had a little local high before it trended back down. Mm -hmm. I think earnings have been up this week, which has been kind of pushing that. And then next week, you've got the FOMC coming out, which is probably going to be a 100 basis point hike. But to continue with Tesla and what Elon did, he did actually come out, I think, and say that this isn't under any circumstance, not under any circumstances, but it doesn't have anything to do with our with, stance on Bitcoin. With their stance on We're going <laughs> to, we may buy back. Which, what he said. yeah. Which is just like, it's so goofy. It's like, what is Elon trading billions of dollars with the Tesla balance sheet? Yeah. Like, is that what he's doing right now? Well, you know what? So for me, the way I look at this and like how the market's reacting right now is like, it comes from one, like when, 
Tesla announced their buy, it was like, it's on, like, <laughs> it's on, like Bitcoin's going to a hundred thousand yeah. tomorrow. Like uh, that's what, so naive. that's what set the, you know, bull market on fire. This was yeah. February, 2021 or maybe late January, 2021 when they announced their buy, I think it, we were around these levels, maybe, I think we're below where he bought initially. I don't remember exactly, but quickly after they bought and went up to 40, like very quickly. So that was a huge narrative. So the narrative back then was, you know, S&P 500 companies are going to start putting their balance sheet into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That didn't end up being true. It was really, you know, just a handful of companies, Tesla being the biggest company to do it. Right. Obviously, MicroStrategy did it before them. You have Cash App, publicly traded miners, obviously. There's a few other handful of publicly traded companies I can't think of off the top of my head. But that was the narrative, you know, in 2020 and then into 2021. And it didn't play out, largely also due to Elon funding. You have to remember, there was building momentum for this type of thing. He, he made that big step into starting to allocate into Bitcoin. And then you would have potentially seen a lot of other companies start to adopt if he didn't start flooding just months later, mm -hmm. sta stating energy concerns right. on things that he didn't fully understand. Right. And also talking about scaling and Bitcoin and things that were hashed out years ago. It did uh, get strange. Yeah. And so like, I don't think Elon was ever like one Bitcoin doesn't need Elon to be the poster boy of mm. Bitcoin. And they don't, I, he, I don't think he ever fully understood how it, its role in, you know, the macro environment. Right. So it, the whole Tesla Elon saga, I, you know, it would be cool if it was completely over. I don't think it is. No, I don't uh, think it is. I think it's probably just getting started. I, this could ironically be the catalyst for larger companies to finally start getting into it because essentially what he did or why they did this was because of, I think, down earnings and by selling or yeah. converting Bitcoin into fiat, I think it was at like an average of 29,000. He was able to boost his earnings yeah. for the quarter, which in inevitably boosted his share prices today and that could be used, that playbook could essentially be used by other Fortune 500 companies to, I mean, he honestly used it as a store of value over two years. Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't remember his average price. I want to say it was 28. So he, he's like slightly <laughs> ahead, but like, I don't, he has play capital gains on that billion dollar. Yeah. Like, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> but I mean, it, it held its value over two years from where he yeah. was at. And he, he boosted his share prices too. I don't know how much. Let me see what. No, the, I thought it ended red. Did it end red? I don't know for sure. I don't see this being any catalyst for companies to start putting it on their balance sheet. You know, it's like, I think you see actually like these nation state adoptions before you see the companies, which is funny. Well, it was uh, up. 0.8% today, and then it's after hours 1.51%. So, I mean, what's that? 2.3% of roughly $800 billion. That's quite a large sum. Do some math real quick. 
15 million dollars that's not it's hard on the stupid phone calculator but anyways 2.3 percent of 800 billion dollars it's quite a bit yes so, hey i mean that'll definitely offset the capital gains of a million dollar or excuse me a billion dollar purchase yeah bitcoin yeah, yeah. so hey i don't know we'll see no i just don't see this being any catalyst for any companies to start adopting not at this like they have to worry about their cash flows right uh, well yeah right now it's kind of heading into a recession maybe not the best time yeah. to jump into a, a risk on asset but like i was saying so that narrative in 2021 didn't really take place but what we did start seeing was the nation state adoption mm -hmm. slowly el salvador also not looking great right now but will we ever see the bonds yeah, no. But <laughs> what I, I honestly see now is not nation state. So, I mean, yeah, we will get nation state adoption going forward. I'm, I'm confident of that. But what we're going to be seeing or like the narrative we're going to take hold, see take hold is peer to peer. So just, you know, recently I just saw a report that Nigeria is banning the purchase of dollars with the Naira. So it is illegal to own U.S. dollars yeah. in Nigeria. When, you know, obviously weak currency, the Naira is a weak currency. Did they state like their reasoning? I mean, it's probably to control inflation of the, the Naira. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they gave any lines. reasoning. I didn't really see. The reasoning is usually the same, right? Your currency is yeah. weak. Right. You, you're trying to keep people in your currency. Yeah. So, I mean... Well, I think this, the central bank in Nigeria, as well as the country has some, somehow made crypto illegal in some form or another. I'm not exactly sure. Illegal but or illegal? Illegal. I'm not sure the, the framework, the legal framework they have set up around it, but I know despite that, I mean, Nigeria is still like one of the highest volume traders exactly. of crypto in general. Yeah, exactly. And, so and Bitcoin. The citizens of Nigeria understand the value prop here, right? They have a weak currency that's, you know, devaluing their savings and they are looking for an asset that can't be debased. So they have one of the highest peer-to-peer -peer uptake of Bitcoin. So I could see, you know, as we see similar situations play out where government start banning the use of anything other than their weakening currency, you're going to try and see flight to safety mm -hmm. dollars are probably harder to get than than bitcoin in a lot of cases yeah i mean how do you get your hands on dollars as a regular nigerian exactly honestly i so, mean and you know they already have high peer-to-peer -peer trading of bitcoin so getting on bitcoin is going to be easier in that situation mm -hmm. i could see the same thing playing out in all those countries that i listed last episode you know that Turkey, are having yep exactly you know all those places, Argentina. I mean, they already do. That is the, I mean, that was always one of the biggest use cases of for Bitcoin. Right. It's not really for like privileged Americans that have access to dollar, you know, a fairly stable currency. Yeah. Again, like at it, this point, right. Yeah. So we don't, I don't think that's always going to be true. I don't think that was ever my base case. Was that the United States dollar is going to continue to be stable? But it'll be stable the longest. It'll be stable the longest. That is all, that is my base case. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think you'll see citizens take up Bitcoin at a higher rate in these, you know, nations that are having their currency devalued at 
crazy at a crazy pace. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So do I want to go into my base case? I'll read a tweet that kind of summer. Yeah, let's get it. it up. Let's get it. Okay. So this was by Jordy Alexander, Game Theorizing. This is something that I've said and written in our different articles on Churrosats, something very similar to this, but I just think he put it pretty eloquently in tweet form, which is kind of hard sometimes. So he goes, every road I try to follow leads to the same place. It's almost inevitable. U.S. dollar is too strong. Economy is headed for a downturn. Need to ease, but can't because of inflation. Solution. Tons of USD printing, but only through soft UBI and handouts for the lower class. Here's why. The traditional way of easing by cutting rates and buying bonds does wonders for financial assets, and the upper class has a ball, especially those closest to the faucet. This is just a side. That's the Cantillian effect. And then he goes... This, despite the Fed and government claiming otherwise, inevitably leads to higher prices trickling everywhere. Meanwhile, with the U.S. economy being more resilient than global ones, they are raising rates faster now. And this is causing a global squeeze through a stronger dollar. This hurts foreign economies as well as multinational corporations who can make less profits in USD now. The solution is to sacrifice inflation and print, but because higher printing inflation can wreck the lower class, this time all the printing will go to soft UBI and other programs to shore them up. Why complain about 10% higher food size gas when you are being handed out the difference? Printed money will weaken the dollar. Middle class gets hollowed up because their UBI doesn't keep up with the printing. Global economies are indirectly getting taxed through this mechanism. They'll be paying for the soft UBI in the USA. Of course, eventually global leaders will tire of footing this bill and the US dollar reserve status will come under threat. China and Russia are, of course, already tired of it, but even allied nations will join them on this. But that's a story for another day. And then he kind of summarizes that, but I think you get the, mm-hmm. the gist. Yeah. That was always like my my base case and, and when kind of how I see things playing out. So in that scenario, what do you do? Right? Like you have to buy hard assets. Mm-hmm. And then you also have these like weird political outcomes that that are offshoot off of this phenomenon that is all I could think, like the only way I could see things playing out like how does the end game go there so like we saw it play out in the 40s similarly and then in previous other times of high inflation and trying to keep the global reserve status right the seizing of gold are they going to try and do something similar are they going to try and seize to try and keep the 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 u.s dollar status but what would they seize exactly so there 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 aren't any gold anymore yeah gold is easier bitcoin but um, can they? So if you're having them in custodians. Yeah. Or another thing that I, I think I heard Luke Roman talk about this was uh, seizing IRAs, but not in not directly. So basically forcing people in IRA plans and 401k plans to hold a portion of their assets in U.S. Treasuries, US treasuries to, hmm. you know, keep that demand for U.S. Treasuries. That's interesting. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Right. So like in order for you to have this tax deferment, you have to hold this percent in U.S. treasuries. Right. And right. Because as he just said in that tweet thread, why other countries are already getting fed up with this. Right. Why are you going to hold U.S. treasuries if your real rate of return is so deeply negative due to this inflation that we have to run hot? And that's where we need to get Bitcoin into these IRAs, because if that were the case, then who cares about tax deferment when I can just stick it all in? Well, who would care about? And you don't 
You wouldn't even put it in an IRA. Exactly. Never mind. That's why you don't do Bitcoin in your IRA. Right. Because they could seize that. I mean, you can't. So it's it's obviously a, it's what percentage do you think this is going to happen? Right. Every, and I always say this too, is like every decision you make is a bet. Literally every single one. And so you have to think in bets. So do you think that the government is going to start trying to, (laughs) bless you. Thanks. <laughs> you, the U.S. government is going to do this. You think they're going to seize IRA plans and, and and take a portion of that? I don't know. Yeah, in the short term. So, like, that's that's a decision that you have to make. Do you want to potentially get the tax deferment of, you know, Bitcoin in these plans and let that play out? Or do you want to just hold your own keys forever and, you know, manage that yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, an interesting thing that, is going to be playing out too on top of what you're saying with how like even Western nations are going to become fed up with the dollar printing. I think it's also going to be become fed up with like U.S. one, like fiscal policy and two, energy policy. Like I think you're going to begin to start seeing kind of a breakup of basically like the world as we know it, like how allies are structured, you know, and a lot of allies are based on one, the fiscal system that the United States has built that was built after World War II because we centralized power through, you know, storing all the gold during all that. And it allowed us to kind of take that power, but also through energy policy as well. And I think things are going to start to break up when these countries that aren't really able to provide energy for themselves start to struggle to get cheap, affordable energy. And it's gonna, it's gonna create like a splintering between like the financial backing that the United States provides along with, you know, maybe some of these other countries that you wouldn't assume to be allies like Russia and China with their natural resources, which are like hard assets. So I think in general, I think the U S is kind of short hard assets right now. Yeah, I was thinking about the ally thing just right now, actually, right? Like Europe is struggling and a strong dollar does not help that. Right. So like they really want the Fed to reverse and start printing at this point in time. Mm-hmm. That's just something I've been thinking about is like that definitely is splintering some relationships right. at this point in time. It's like because they're, they're raising and Europe is... Not. So far behind that yeah. curve and cannot, you know? They, I mean, they literally can't. They have to, they're doing almost like a soft yield curve control with like Italian bonds. Yeah. And that's where people have said, you know, the Fed has made them by starting to raise, like they should have just continued to print. And then you could just have inflation run hot for a few years, get the debt to GDP down. But as soon as you try and start to raise <laughs> rates, that ship kind of starts to sail. <laughs> then you just, you're stuck in, yep. you're committed to it. Now. Yeah, exactly that. And you also then, what happens? Like you go so far one way, then you have to go so far the other way. So then you have, you know, inflation running 50% for or three years, you know what yeah. I mean? Instead yeah. of like potentially manageable 12% for however many years. Right. Just like, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I obviously have no idea how it's all going to play out, but these are all things to keep into consideration. It's going to be a show for sure. Yeah. And that's why, you know, continue to allocate to an asset that I think does well in that environment. It's about like, you don't have to be a hundred percent correct 
in this. Like you just have to be like directionally correct to preserve your buying power Mm -hmm. during what might be a difficult decade financially. It's already like, this is like, it's just a crazy financial environment for like every analyst. Like you listen to everyone and everyone either saying different things or like just saying that this is the most difficult macro environment they've ever traded. Like people have been trading for like 40 years. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, well, for the last 40 years, they just had to buy bonds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then things, yeah. Then they just made money. Yeah. I always say that. Like, it's so freaking easy. I know. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And then our generation just kind of got screwed. Can't afford a house. Yeah. Bonds suck. Yeah. The stock market is, who knows? <laughs> All right. So from there, you want to go back to the crypto market? Sure. How about three hours capital still? We're still talking about them. They apparently owed $3.5 billion to 27 different companies. <laughs> uh, DCG and Grayscale, DCG, which is one's Grayscale, basically said they're fine. They, I didn't see much else besides them saying they're fine. Genesis said they're fine. Didn't they have, Genesis was what, like a 2 billion, two, was it 2.3 billion, like unsecured month yeah, to crazy. Crazy. What? Yeah. And I don't know how they're still fine. Who is, I don't even know. That means like, so I, so I think like DCG had like a billion. Somehow they're fine. Genesis trading. But isn't that more like that billion, is that more than the fees that they make from the Bitcoin trust? Yeah. So, I mean, they have like a cash cow in the grayscale Bitcoin trust, which is where I wanted to go with this. Right. So like. I don't know how much assets they have to cover this type of thing and mm-hmm. like what it does to them, but I have previously said, I hope they lower that, that grayscale fee. Yeah. That would close that, that discount that the, the grayscale Bitcoin trust is trading at. So like I've said before, grayscale's Bitcoin trust trades at a massive discount to the spot Bitcoin that they have in the trust. But if they truly did lose all this money to three hours capital and they're not getting it back any of it back then you have a situation where they can't lower this the fee the fee yeah yearly fee just looking at the fee like at a twenty five thousand dollar bitcoin which what they have somewhere around like six hundred ninety thousand bitcoin or something yeah, like that crazy. it's like about 350 million dollars for the year and fees yeah so that's a third of a billion dollars lost. So it would take a three years on that 2% fee. They might have to increase the fee. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So I don't know. I need to look into that a bit more to see how that all plays out, but it's definitely something to take a look at. Yeah. And Chair, that, Chair Gensler could have made all of this whole, you know, that's what I said. All he had to do is, you know, approve a spot ETF and none of this would have happened. But again, that goes back to my theory is, Maybe he wanted this to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Flush it out. See who is still standing and who is leveraged on cl- like without any collateral. Yeah. I saw someone, I forget who it was. It was like, well, they had collateral. It was like the biggest yacht in Singapore. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't know how much that is. <laughs> what else we got? Yeah. Go into my Ethereum B for the week. Let's get it. We haven't had one. So yeah, last, last episode, I was kind of nice to Ethereum. 
<laughs> unsurprising. And then, and then you went surprising. No, uh, sorry. Surprising. Yeah. Excuse me. So then you went and you had a nice little chat and I think you remembered how much you, <laughs> Ethereum annoys you. Yes. I don't hate Ethereum. As I've said a million times here, I don't hate Ethereum. I just have a lot of problems with them. They just, they have a lot of problems. And so I did have, like, I had a chat with Laura Shin. I don't know if that'll ever get published. <laughs> we just kind of talked about the article I wrote, the last article I wrote. So I need to get back on an article here. It's been like three months now. I know. But I wrote, you know, I mentioned it a bunch of times already on here, the Lido article, basically how Lido is causing centralization problems in Ethereum due to their liquid staking derivative. So yeah, we just discussed that for a while. I hadn't revisited revisited that article for months, so I forgot about a lot of the, the details and some of the stats and just how incredible they are and how they're not getting any better as we get closer to the Ethereum merge, which definitely looks like it's going to happen, it, potentially even in September. Mm -hmm. So very soon. And once they go to from proof of work to proof of stake, so that's what the merge is for all the Bitcoiners that for whatever reason, don't know. If you're new here and you haven't heard the three, four episodes where we've talked about this. Yeah. There's a lot of centralizing problems once they do that. And it's not the, you know, usual ones you think about, or at least you hear Bitcoiners talk about, which is like, oh, proof of stake. They had a 70% pre-mine. So all the people that have coins and proof of stake are going to completely like just own the whole thing. And like, that's not really how it plays mm -hmm. out. That's not how it has played out their distribution has been better since since its inception and then that's not also how like governance works same with like bitcoin if you have a lot of bitcoin yes the economic majority could have a sway in a forking situation but we have seen nodes have a say so it's economic nodes not necessarily just bitcoin holders right so similarly some of these problems go a little bit beyond that basic concept, right? So I'm not going to go back into my article, but it just sparked a couple of thoughts, this discussion that I had with her, some things that I hadn't really fully considered or an angle that I didn't want to go into, or I'm sorry, an angle that I hadn't gone to before. So she was basically saying like, she was talking about stable coins. Basically I said in Lido is going to end up staking with them because it just makes the more sense, the most sense, mm. right? So like Lido is running nodes for Ethereum, validating right, right. nodes, and everyone's going to stake, put their Ethereum on Lido and essentially give Lido all the power because to do otherwise would just be benevolence, right? right? So you just automatically be taking a hit because Lido could generate you the most Ethereum by staking with them and you get the most rewards by staking with them. Yeah. So anyone that doesn't stake with them is basically just doing so out of the goodness of their heart or right. trying to preserve decentralization right. in any way. And ultimately, I think the incentives are so strong that it just leads to Lido having a complete monopoly or at best an oligarchy or oligopoly. <laughs> That's their best case scenario is they get an oligopoly. So you know? basically, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly in simple my, economics. Yeah, in, it's... in my brain, that's how I see it right now. And I haven't seen anything that has swayed me otherwise, even after this talk with her. But her talking about stable coins actually did bring up something that I hadn't considered. She was like, well, people use different stable coins for different reasons. Some people use USDC if they want to do more stuff on the books and or by the books, they'll use a state, a decentralized, like, you know, almost like the Luna one, if they want to a be, or yeah, or like, you know, if they want to 
be like more untraceable or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they're using different ones. So she was like, well, how come? And this one, it did rack me when she she said this because it's something I just hadn't really, I guess, considered. And, you know, I hadn't revisited all. I didn't really prepare, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, we we don't prepare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is like when we do these, it's like 15, 20 minutes prior. Yeah, but that's how it was with her, too. <laughs> so she said, how come people won't use different staking pools for different reasons that fit their, like, whatever they're trying to go for? And I went back to, you know, basically it's because they would lose out on a ton yeah. of money. But her talking about stable coins basically got me thinking about stable coins on Ethereum. And it's just an idea I have and just something I need to kind of flush out and Maybe I'll write something about this once I get it all fleshed out. I've only seen a few people really talk about this. Eric Wall being one. I've heard Nick Carter mention it. But basically, stablecoins are completely... There's The biggest stablecoin issuers are centralized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We've seen decentralized stablecoins fail. Terra Luna, for example. Algorithmic decentralized stablecoins. That one wasn't even decentralized. Yeah, I mean, that's quote unquote. But there are other attempted decentralized stablecoins. We don't have a true one that I am aware of. Something I'll dig into once I start getting into this. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the biggest stablecoins are centralized issuers. So just real quick, what would, what would you constitute a decentralized stablecoin? Because is there always going to have to be some issuer or would it be maybe a so it's probably be like programmatic within one of these smart contracts where like yeah. every person that participates pledges some collateral. It'd have to be like a DAO situation. Pretty perhaps. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I have you know like I'm not part of the ETH community. I don't dig into every. I don't do DeFi shit. Like I haven't dug into it. I only dig into it when something like this catches my attention. Attention. Yeah. So basically. Stablecoin issuers, the biggest ones are very centralized. Most of the DeFi activity is done through these stablecoins that are very centralized. So what happens in Ethereum, for example, this could happen in other chains as well. There's a contentious hard fork or something, right? So as we're going, just as an example, and this is not what's happening, right? Because they have the difficulty bombs. But let's say mm. in Ethereum, they're moving to proof of stake. Some people want to stay proof of work. Right. So the chain splits. You have a proof of work Ethereum chain and a proof of stake Ethereum chain. In that situation, uh, on that day when they decide they're going to proof of stake and then they continue to mine the proof of work chain, mm -hmm. now you have stable coins on both chains from decentralized issuers because they're ERC 20 tokens. They are smart contracts essentially. So these smart contracts are on both chains. So, you know, there's only so much collateral to meet these redemptions if there were redemptions by let's say usdc so you have usdc on both chains so question yeah when this split happens would it split like just one to one like now it doubles both like all right so you have 90 or say 40 billion dollars of usdc on ethereum it splits now you have $40 billion on the proof of stake and $40 billion yeah. on the proof of work chain. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's how that works. So obviously they don't, they can't meet all that. That's, right. You know, they have to choose. They have to choose which one they are going to meet redemptions for. And so by doing so, they have just become the de facto governance 
for Ethereum, right? Because <laughs> whatever chain they decide is the real one is the one that's going to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise you're mining, you're continuing to mine blocks for a chain that doesn't have any value on it or less value, right? Because like there's other things that get traded on there. But so then that's what happens when you have the giant centralized entities making such a large part of a large economic part. Yeah. And it goes back to the Oracle problem, right? Whenever you have something outside of the blockchain have value within the blockchain, Mm -hmm. they have to make up decisions on how they input data and deal with that data outside of it. Right. So, yeah. So that's just something I've been thinking about. It's that's like, very interesting. Yeah. It's something that I don't know why no one talks about. It's like, I feel like I should have heard this a million times. Are they just going to assume that it's just going to work? Going to be Well, so okay. like, yeah. I mean, going to prove a stake, they have the difficulty bomb. So this doesn't happen. There isn't a hard fork. But not to say that in the future, they should be allowed to fork. Like, right. You know what I mean? Like, you should be allowed to. So there could, in essence, be, say, a fork that a large majority of ETH holders would, it would benefit large majority of ETH holders. Yeah. It wouldn't benefit USDC. Yeah. So USDC, which, you know, in the future, maybe they have $90 billion worth of ERC20 tokens. They could hold the chain and hostage. they could just say, no, we're not, we don't agree with this new chain. And so... 97% of users get affected by it, except for USDC. Exactly. All right. That is a <laughs> another incredibly... So this goes back to now, to bring it back onto Bitcoin. This is where I'm weary of stable coins on Bitcoin. With Terra. With Terra. Now, I don't know how it all plays out with the Lightning Network, right? Because if there's like, if there's a hard, f- if there's a fork in, in Bitcoin... I don't know exactly how the Lightning Network is affected. It's something I'd have to think about for a while. Yeah. But in any way, having such centralized entities having such economic influence on the chain is never a good thing. Right. They could have, even for soft forks, you know, they through their economic incentives, they could push for certain changes in the network just through however many yeah. tokens they have. But at the same time, they're on the very outskirts of this, like right. if you map out the Lightning Network, they're like, you know, at at the, towards the end of this they're routing. Not, they're not baseline. Yeah, so like they're taking sats and I guess then issuing out coins. So mm. something I, I'll think about and try and look into and then maybe put together something. This no, will I be my next th- That'll article. be the next big one. I think that'll, that'll be a hit. That's, hey, and if anyone wants to come on the show, and talk to us about that if they have yeah like, if they know about it yeah that'd be really cool and shoot me a dm if you have any links or references or or anything that i could look into because yeah this is something that's very interesting and that, has has sparked my brain yeah and haven't had a good spark in a, in a minute so yeah we're looking for sparks in the bear market <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's my ethereum beef of the week tldr oh is stablecoin issuers centralized stablecoin issuers get to choose which fork is real. That's no bueno. No bueno at all. Yeah. So, I mean, what you really want is 
<laughs> this is why Bitcoin will still always be number one. And part of my general thesis is they're not trying to do all this complex shit, right? We don't know all the different outcomes in such a complex system. This Ethereum is such a beast, like in terms of all the things that spawned that, you know, yeah. Vitalik had no idea how this would all end up. There is no way to know. I mean, you, you want to create all this functionality that allows all these different people to do different things based on their different incentives. And it just creates a mess. I mean, you, you, it's, it's really almost like comparative to just our basic economy right now. I don't know, you know, like there's just so many different people doing so many different things that you can't track it and it all just gets lost. Yeah. And so like, I only, I only pick on Ethereum really on these is cause like they're number two, right? They are probably the most decentralized L1, you know, smart contracty thing. And then everything else is like more centralized and like shittier. Yeah. That's like, you don't even, you have even like the worst assumptions on, on these. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how it ends up and that's why I, like I've said before and why I don't park my money there. It's just like too many risk factors. You don't know which one will actually, you know, be a dominant one if there is one, well, I think, if they don't all suffer from these problems, yeah, I mean, which I, I don't know if they do. I think we focus or we, when we get into these Ethereum beefs, I think you know, we talk about it outside of Bitcoin, even though we're a Bitcoin podcast, because there's, there's real world consequences and effects from what happens in Ethereum. I mean, being the number two chain, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of value. Ton of value there. So it can affect people, it can affect their lives. And, you know, I think just being prepared and understanding the risks is important. So well, that, I think that's why we keep pushing it. I keep pushing it there too. And like, also it's interesting. They have done a lot of interesting research and they have definitely forwarded the space in terms of cryptography in general. Like mm -hmm. they're doing cutting edge cryptography on Ethereum on different like layers and zero knowledge proofs and stuff like that. Like these are like, if they didn't exist, like these things couldn't really get flushed out. Right. Cause no one's doing anything on Bitcoin cause we don't want it to do it anything. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we don't want to move fast break stuff. And this is where like, I get back to that maxi debate where like, I'm actually okay with Ethereum doing all this shit. They could try and figure all this shit out. It's just like, you should know if you are going to invest in this, right? what you're doing and what some of the risk vectors are and you know why it might not be the best place to store your value long term but they could do you know they could try all this cool shit yeah i mean like we need i really think we need to understand the consequences the long term consequences of the changes that get implemented into bitcoin i mean just thinking about tarot and then you talking about bringing up the stablecoin possibilities it's like it's not something that I think many people have ever, I, I've literally never heard it before. Yeah. And so being able to potentially see the consequences on Ethereum, you know, might be able to translate into the potential consequences and risk benefits of bringing it to Bitcoin. I mean, you know, a ton of people, I, I think this also goes back to the whole Bitcoin maxi thing where the thing that you had said about Alex B with like, most people are just not capable of understanding the broader like financial implications of everything. So 
that's where that whole maxi like the 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 bitcoin regulatory body that just says no only bitcoin you're too stupid yeah (laughs) but it has its place but at the same time it's like they're acting almost like a test net yeah it's where like they're they're trying these things and like now we might get a a warning first Mm -hmm. of what we shouldn't do right so there's that that's you know that's my Ethereum beef of the week. That's my, think it's a good place to wrap. I agree. Yeah, so let's let's call it. We're ending this episode here. This is Dap. Big Brown. Peace.